Good evening, little masters, and welcome to episode 92 of the Prancing Pony podcast, where tonight we are um, <clears throat> correcting an oversight from the very beginning of our show. That's one way to say it. And we'll yeah. join the party in the common room in just a moment, folks. My name is Sean Marchese, the real-life Lord of the Mark, and I'm here with the man of the West, the monster to my critic, Alan Sisto. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Sean. I'd, of course, prefer if we were both critics. That way I could be the Statler to your Waldorf. <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, today we are easing in to Season 3 of the Prancing Pony Podcast with an episode on something that we really should have discussed a long time ago. That's right, we are finally going to cover Tolkien's seminal 1936 lecture, Beowulf, The Monsters and the Critics. Yeah, and I'm afraid it really was an oversight. You see, in an essay in the recent collection, There Would Always Be a Fairy Tale, Professor Verlin Flieger pointed out that she always teaches Tolkien through the lens of two lectures or essays uh, on fairy stories and Beowulf, The Monsters and the Critics. That's right, two of them, and we just did the one. We covered on mm -hmm. fairy stories way back in our very first episode, and we've been referencing it ever since, of course, but sure, it never yeah. really occurred to us that the Beowulf essay really did deserve the same treatment until we started reading Dr. Flieger's newest book and, of course, talking to her. Saw the error of our ways, as they say. So here Indeed. we are, and it is perfect timing for it because we are about to dive into The Lord of the Rings next week. Mm -hmm. Today, we're going to start by talking a little bit about the Beowulf essay, some of the key concepts in it and how those relate to Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the poem Beowulf, don't worry. We'll give you enough background to go on so you understand what we're talking about. That's right. Kind of the, uh, well, I'd say Cliff's Notes version, but really the Prancing Pony podcast version should be more entertaining. We will try. <laughs> That's the hope at least. But yeah. before we get into any of that, let's have our next installment of This Week in Tolkien History. Okay. Well, a couple of these are kind of silly, but there's one really big one that we need to talk about. So uh, we'll mm -hmm. get to that one as soon as we can. I'm going to start with in This Week in 1965... And I say this week because uh, Skull and Hammond's chronology says uh, 1 to 7 September with question marks on it. So I don't think they're quite <laughs> sure on the exact dates, but it's definitely this week. Professor Tolkien traveled on an airplane for the first time. Oh, my. I just thought that was neat. I, I think it's kind of adorable. He, he would have been 73 years old in wow. 1965, and he flew from Birmingham to Dublin, Ireland with uh -huh. Christopher. And then Christopher drove him across Ireland to Galway. Wow. So that's kind of neat. Uh, first, yeah. first plane travel. I, and I'm kind of wondering if any of our friends in the uh, Irish smile of the Tolkien Society, Tolru, uh -huh. uh -huh. uh, have any more information on that story. So uh, folks, uh, especially Mick, if you're listening, let us know. Please do. Well, on September 4th, 1957, so a few years before that, Tolkien got a visit in Oxford from Forrest J. Ackerman, a name all of our listeners should be familiar with. He was an American magazine editor and science fiction guru who at that time was trying to get the ill-fated animated Lord of the Rings movie written by a Mr. Zimmerman <laughs> off the ground. <laughs> Tolkien was apparently impressed at the first meeting, both with the concept drawings and with Ackerman himself. Unfortunately, his pleasure didn't last long. Once he got the storyline yeah. from, uh, from Zimmerman, Tolkien's reaction was to comment on it in that hilarious letter number 210. And it is truly amazing. If you haven't, if you can't remember <laughs> any of that stuff, go back to episodes 50 and 51 where we talked yeah. about it some. But uh, that's definitely worth a laugh, and we kind of mm -hmm. need it because of this yeah. last one we've got to talk about here today. Folks, on this day in 1973, um, Professor Tolkien passed away at the age of 81. Yeah. Um, today, September 2nd, is the 45th anniversary of his death. Mm -hmm. He was laid to rest in Wolvercote Cemetery in North Oxford, right next to Edith, who had passed away earlier in 1971. And as I think everybody knows, the name Baron was inscribed on the gravestone under his name. Yes. Uh, right beneath Edith's name and the name Luthien. It's a, it's a beautiful site. 
I've only seen it in pictures, but I do hope to visit it in person someday soon. Well, I'm sure you will. Uh, I'll be attending Oxenmoot later this month, and we will all be visiting their graves. Uh, it's sure to be a, a very poignant moment, I have no doubt. Yeah. I'm sorry we had to end our intro on that sorrowful note, but we really did want to make sure we talked about it. We owe such a debt of gratitude to the professor after all. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, we wouldn't be who we are without you know, his work. And, and I, I'd say that as, as people, not just as podcasters. That's right. Um, That's right. But I know we want to get on with the show now, Alan, but first we've got some words from a sponsor, don't we? That's right, Sean. We are pleased to announce that this week's episode of the Prancing Pony podcast is sponsored by Emily Austin Design. Yeah, you know, as we've walked through the Legendarium on the show, one of the most striking elements of Tolkien's works is how they can conjure such powerful images in our minds. That's right. Well, when we attended MythMoot, we got to meet Emily Austin. She's a fine artist who's passionate about capturing and creating those images. Through bright, colorful, and wonderfully detailed paintings, Emily brings glimpses of the wonder and beauty of Tolkien's works right into the primary world. So much so, in fact, I bought one of her originals myself. That's right. You did. I remember that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, folks, you really should check out Emily Austin Design on Facebook for frequent doses of artwork inspired by Tolkien, as well as other master storytellers. Mm -hmm. Prints and originals are available for purchase, and you can even commission Emily to create a one-of-a-kind Tolkien painting just for you. And as a special treat for listeners of the Prancing Pony podcast, Emily Austin Design is offering a 10% discount off any website purchases through September 30th. Just visit emilyaustindesign.com slash shop and use the code BREE to secure your discount. Once again, that's emilyaustindesign.com slash shop, discount code B-R-E-E. And we'll be sure to put that link, along with links to her other social media channels, in our show notes for you as well. Absolutely. Well then, without any further ado, why don't we get started with Beowulf, the Monsters, and the Critics. Well, we'll go ahead and start by talking about exactly what it is. So Beowulf, (laughs) probably a good place to start. Hey, what is this thing? Uh, (laughs) Beowulf, the Monsters and the Critics was an essay that Tolkien wrote and delivered as the Sir Israel Golantz Memorial Lecture to the British Academy in London on November 25th, 1936. Wow. So to put that in context in his life, that was a little over two years before he presented on fairy stories, which was the Andrew Lang Lecture in March Mm -hmm. 1939. Um, November 1936 also would have been only a few weeks after he sent The Hobbit to Alan and Unwin for oh, consideration. And yeah. publication was still almost a year away, of course, because that was published in September 37. That's right. Well, the essay actually began as a series of lectures that Tolkien gave at Oxford on the subject of Beowulf between 1933 and 1935. He eventually condensed them into the single lecture that he gave in 1936. Those original lectures were eventually collected several years ago and published in 2002 in an edition called Beowulf and the Critics, edited by former guest of the show, Professor Michael Drought. That's right. Now, the final version, delivered as the 1936 lecture, is published in a collection of Tolkien's academic essays titled The Monsters and the Critics and Other Essays. Now, it's really easy to find wherever you buy books. Mm -hmm. It also contains versions of some of his other essays, which we've talked about on the show, on fairy stories, a secret vice, English and Welsh, Uh, It's an older edition, so in a lot of cases there are newer and more well-annotated editions of many of these essays. But it's a good addition to your bookshelf, especially if you don't have any of his academic stuff yet. That's true. And and Tolkien was really uniquely positioned to give uh, an essay on Beowulf because he had a very long relationship with it throughout his entire life. Yeah, true. Went back to Humphrey Carpenter's biography and uh, was kind of surprised to remember that he actually learned Old English as early as 1903 when he was 11 years old. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I know. Let that sink in for a minute, right? 
Um, 11 years old and he's already learning. He's already learning <laughs> Old English. Well, you know, he'd already mastered Greek and Latin. Well, that's uh, true. But Humphrey Carpenter actually suggests he might have been reading Beowulf in the original language not long after that. That is amazing. I, it tr- uh, it's astounding. I can't, I can't even comprehend. I mean, yeah, you don't, being you don't 13, want to know what I was spending my time on when I was 11 years old. I wasn't even reading Lord of the Rings yet. So <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Um, it really is. He was, he was definitely well-versed in Beowulf by 1913 because that's mm-hmm. when he was at Oxford. Yeah. He actually completed a prose translation of the entire poem by 1926. And wow. that one was published just a few years ago. That's that uh, the one that's in mm-hmm. that really beautiful green, uh, oh, green yeah. edition with the dragon on the cover. Uh, yeah. Certainly worth reading, especially if you if you don't have a copy of Beowulf, you haven't read it before. Uh, it's a good good place to start for a Tolkien it fan. It is, yeah. And um, and in the preface to that edition, Christopher Tolkien wrote, "The translation was completed by 1926 when my father was 34. Before him lay two decades as the professor of Anglo-Saxon at Oxford." two decades of further study of Old English poetry, together with an arduous program of lectures and classes, and reflection most especially on Beowulf. Wow. So that was before 20 years of further experience. Right, right. Uh, that, he, that he was already <laughs> writing a complete translation of, wow. of the story. So definitely Beowulf was a lifelong passion for him. He studied it his yeah. entire life. He knew it well enough to have a complete prose translation of it. A full 10 years before the lecture we're talking about today was delivered. My goodness. Well, and if you listen to our episodes on The Hobbit last season, you know that it was a frequent inspiration to him in writing things like... That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the Dragon. Yeah. The Incident of the Stolen Cup. And even characters like Bayorn really have Beowulf as a source, or at least an inspiration. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, we shouldn't be surprised that his essay, The Monsters and the Critics, is considered, by Professor Drought again, the most important essay ever written about Beowulf. Now... Michael Drought, who has written quite a lot on Tolkien's work with Beowulf, has said that it marks the beginning of modern scholarship on Beowulf. He even says, and and all of this is in his article on the essay in the J.R.R. Tolkien Encyclopedia that he edited, Mm -hmm. he says that, quote, even if Tolkien had never published The Lord of the Rings, his academic reputation would have been made with this one essay. Wow. That's amazing. More more on that in a moment for sure. But for now, just wow. That says a lot. It's amazing to think, um, you know, because we know everything else he ever did. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, we, we, we think of him as, you know, a, a fantasy author and, and all the wonderful things that he left behind for us. But, uh, but yeah, he, he would have been, uh, you know, a, a well-known academic, even if it weren't for all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So Absolutely. Well, let's take a look at Beowulf, just sort of a, a quick overview of it, uh, just for, for folks who aren't quite as familiar with it, because it is going to be important to have a a basic understanding of the story in order to understand some of Tolkien's points about it. Um, And a a basic understanding of the story is probably all we can provide. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Even that might be stretching it, sir. (laughs) Even that might be stretching it. We are not medievalists. So I guess the big caveat, first of all, is, you know, please, if if there's anybody out there who knows more about Beowulf than we do, and and I know there are many of you. Uh, please let us know if we've missed anything, if we've misstated something, uh, got something a little bit wrong. We are not Beowulf experts. No. I don't even really consider us Tolkien experts, but we do talk about him a lot. So we've at least got that going for us. But, yeah, yeah. We might be knowledgeable amateurs when it comes to Tolkien, but when it comes <laughs> right, to Beowulf, exactly. we're fumbling around we, in we the are, dark. We are not knowledgeable uh, amateurs. No, no not just, at all. <laughs> we are pure amateurs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We are amateurish amateurs. We are amateurish amateurs. That's true. Good point. 
<laughs> so if you haven't if you haven't read Beowulf and if you you know if you don't have a copy of it first you know go out and buy oh, yeah. either Tolkien's translation that we talked about mm-hmm. uh, or one of the other translations out there. There's actually one by um, uh, a poet named Seamus Haney that uh, is pretty popular. It came out. Is is that one of the alliterative verse ones? Uh, I I I don't recall if that one's actually in alliterative verse. I do know that it is. Uh, it was written, it was translated with an eye for, uh, or an ear, I guess, for the poetry. Right. Like he was trying to make a good poem out of it. So he might okay. have, he might have used alliteration more than most. Um, I, I guess I know what I know is it's not all that, um, literal of a translation. Oh. It's more oh, of okay. a, more of a poetic translation. It's more about the feel. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But what's cool about that edition is that the, the old English is on the page facing the modern English. So if you want oh, to okay. see specific lines that Tolkien references, you can actually, I, that's actually what I was doing when I, you know, I was studying for this episode was I was looking at the Haney and looking at the old English uh, lines and then, you know, the modern English kind of gives you a sense of what it means. Mm-hmm. But um, that's probably way more information than anybody ever wanted to know about how I, how I studied for this episode. But <laughs> so uh, <laughs> you'd be surprised, I'm sure. I have a feeling folks want to know those things. Yeah. But uh, seriously, if you like Tolkien's work, there's no reason you wouldn't like Beowulf. I would highly yeah. recommend it for anybody. Well, and the advantage to Tolkien's version is it comes with Selleck's spell, which is really worth reading, too. I haven't read that one yet. Yeah, it's his take on the story that would have been behind Beowulf. Like, it, it, anyway, would definitely well worth reading. Not certainly very relevant to what we're talking about today, but uh, right. a lot of fun to read. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Beowulf is an old English alliterative poem, mm-hmm. and it is... It's long, but it's not that long. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's just under 3,200 lines. My notes say 3,182 lines. Okay. Um, so it's really short as a quote-unquote epic goes, you know? I mean, right. it's really not an epic. I mean, Tolkien Yeah, that's kind of what I was about epic. to say is it's not really an epic, is it? It's frequently called one, but I think okay. Tolkien did not consider it one. In fact, he does say in the essay, it is not an epic. And right. certainly not by length. I mean, if you look at something no, like the Iliad, no. that's like 16,000 lines or almost 16,000 wow. lines. Wow. Um, Five times plus. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Something like, you know, Virgil's Aeneid, I think, is one of the shorter ones at 10,000 lines. So okay. yeah. it's way shorter than than any, you know, classical epic. And it, and it really mm-hmm. isn't that anyway. No. It is, though. It's one of the earliest things ever written in the English language, right. if not the earliest long-form work in English. Right. And, of course, when we say English, we're talking about Old English, which <laughs> yes. for people like us is effectively a different language than what we're speaking now. I mean, quite, quite it really different. does need a translation. And when we start quoting the occasional line or phrase, you'll hear what we mean if you if you don't know already. I mean, true. every once in a while on this show, we've we've tried a, a line or two of Old English poetry. Mm-hmm. And it's um, it's totally different. It's it's you know, it is a different. Well, language. even when we talk about ailed into your work, you know, I mean, that's yeah, that's yeah. Uh, some old English and it's. Yeah. The work of giants. The, the ancient. Yeah. What the, is the, it again? The ancient, ancient, the work ancient of giants. Work of yeah. giants. Yeah, a, I, I don't. I don't pick that up. <laughs> I mean, right. ailed, kind of old. Okay, yeah. Ailed but, sounds wow. like old. Yeah, yeah. work is like a, I think it's like a past participle. You know, something that's been worked. Yeah. Um, but, but it does uh, take I'm, some. It does take some effort, and I'll, I'll tell you, reading yeah. Beowulf in the original is not something that I'm planning on doing anytime soon. <laughs> no, no. I wish I could. No. I wish I could. I truly do. It's a beautiful you language, know, but. It's on my yeah. list. It's like, you know, yeah, it's if a I had a bucket list, sort of list thing, right? I don't really have a bucket list, like organized bucket list. But yeah, it's definitely something I'd like to do at some point in my yeah. life. But I've never undertaken it before. And so I'm just not really. Yeah. I mean, if I had no need to work jobs to feed my family <laughs> and could just take the time <laughs> sure. to study yeah. for the sake of studying, 
Uh, I would do that. I would study Old English. And if I could go be a monk and just, you know. So those of you who are younger and still have that that option ahead of you, uh, please, mm-hmm. Signum University is doing this stuff. You should you should sign up, Absolutely. become a part of their program. Yeah, yeah. definitely. It's a, there's good, a lot a lot of opportunities out there that I, that weren't there when I was in college. Oh my god! Um, yeah, no, not even a chance. <laughs> and I did, you know, I did take some medieval literature classes, and I had a, a professor who. You know, he, he helped us a little bit with the old English, but it wasn't, you know, we didn't no. really sit there and learn the language. It was just, you know, kind of no. stumble around in, in a heavily glossed copy. You know, and the closest I ever got to old English wasn't old at all. It was middle English. It was Chaucer. I mean, in, in my English oh, yeah. classes. Yeah, so. Canterbury Tales. and Right, right. Juan de Tapriel with his sure sorta. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And mm-hmm. even that was was confusing. But, you know, confusing yeah. to the 19-year-old me. Right. Yeah. What What wasn't confusing to the nineteen year old? Well, that's just it. Like when when you're exposed to this stuff in undergrad, it's like you're not you're not ready for it. No. Maybe no. some people are. I wasn't. <laughs> no. Tolkien was ready for it when he was eleven. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know that, that which just shows the difference between us. Generational talent there. So yeah. <laughs> anyway, we digress. We do. But uh, the so the single surviving manuscript of Beowulf dates to. About AD 1000, uh, mm-hmm. 975 to 1025 is the range I've seen. So, you know, yeah, sort of straddling that line of, of AD 1000. Right. The poem itself might be as old as uh, 700 or maybe wow. shortly after that. Um, I believe Tolkien particularly was one of the people who argued for it having been written, excuse me, it having been composed earlier right. and, and transmitted, transmitted orally, orally for a few generations right. before being written down. I think he, he thought that just it just seemed like something that had to have happened shortly after the conversion to Christianity of most of England. Yeah. I, I, I happen to buy into that, but, you know, I'm not an expert. Yeah. So. yeah. And, of course, the story is, is less of a continuous story, per se, than it is a, a series of episodes, really, in the life of the hero named Beowulf. Sure, yeah. Uh, and he belongs to the Geats, a tribe from southern Sweden. Now, in the first episode, he, uh, he's a young lord and an adventurer, and he comes with some of his men to the home of Hrothgar, uh, a Danish king. Now, his mead hall, Heorot, basically imagine Medjuseld, sure, yeah. uh, is being attacked every night by a monster named Grendel. Now, every night, Grendel hears the people singing and playing their harps and having a good time in Heorot. And he gets angry, probably because he's all alone. Yeah. This is self-isolation. As we've, <laughs> it's one yeah. of the sins yeah, of Melkor. So he comes in while they're sleeping, kills a few Danes and eats them. Mm, Danishes. <laughs> so, I'm sorry. That was a softball right over the plate. I had to hit that one. Um, you had to, of course. I had to, I, of course. Uh, and then after having some Danishes, uh, he, he goes home. Now, Beowulf agrees to take care of the And they're the, the mead-filled problem. Danishes. They're the really good ones Ooh, that are really hard to mead-filled Danishes. See, I'm thinking yeah. of just like, you know, apple Danishes or, or you know, raspberry Danishes. But yeah, there's mead that too, Danishes, but... that's cool. Yeah. You know, a little yeah. honey, a little, yeah. Right. Oh, that's yeah. good. That's good. Good taste. Did somebody say honey? Sorry. <laughs> oh, bother. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you, Beowulf, say, you say honey and he just comes right out. I, I know, exactly. You say that word and, and poo just arrives yeah. mysteriously. Uh, it, it's sort of like saying Betelgeuse or something like that. You know? <laughs> honey, honey, honey. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> that would be great, wouldn't it? I would start saying that all the time to have him show up, man. That'd be great. It'd be hilarious. He's like, he's like Betelgeuse or the, the candy man or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Definitely would have Pooh rather than the others, but that's just me. <laughs> Certainly, yeah. So Beowulf agrees to take care of the problem for the king. Uh, Beowulf and his men sleep in the meat hall. Grendel comes and Beowulf fights the monster barehanded. 
Now, he tears Grendel's arm off. Yeah. Grendel runs home to his mother. I know. He runs home to his mother. I'm not kidding. This is it's true. Like they can't it's true. kick this guy out. Get a job, Grendel. He's still Get living in his mom's basement. His, yeah. <laughs> Which Self-isolation, is we'll find out. indeed. No wonder. He, <laughs> never mind. No I'm just going to stop that right there. Eating the Danes. <laughs> right. Um, so apparently, you know, neither of them know how to make a tourniquet, so he bleeds out. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. So he's gone. Uh, and then the second episode starts, which is basically, a, I think, a day or two later. Yeah. And in that, Grendel's mother, who, of course, is another monster. She's not Angelina Jolie in that <laughs> strange movie that came out a few years ago. Yeah. Um, that was sort of animated. But uh, anyway, that yeah. thing was weird. But, yeah, that was bizarre. Um, yeah, so she's a monster, and she comes back to Harrow to get revenge. Right. She kills another guy, another one of Hrothgar's men, and then right. she escapes. So then Beowulf and some of his men track her down to her underwater lair, and Beowulf jumps into the water. He fights her with a sword this time. He doesn't use his bare hands. Smart man. And he cuts off her head. Yeah. And then I think he cuts, I think he cuts off the head of uh, Grendel's corpse, too, which I, I, I guess so. just, you know, make sure he's just dead. Just to make sure, right? Yeah. Then he, you know, he wins, he goes back to Harrod, he wins the praise and the love and the eternal gratitude of Hrothgar, very important to these people. Yes. Um, he goes back home victorious to Gaetland, where he tells the story of his adventures to the king there, Hialak, right. and then he's granted praise and love and land and titles at home for bringing fame and glory to, you know, to, to the Gaetz. Right. Right. And, you know, this, this episode ends with him sort of on top of the world, like everything's great. He's, his life is just Everything he wants it to be. Exactly. And how different would the stories have been if the if it had just ended there? Because right. the third episode takes place 50 years later. He's now a king of the Gaots and near the end of his life. Now, some jerk sneaks into the lair of a nearby dragon, steals a cup, and wakes up the dragon, who then proceeds to terrorize the countryside all around. Where have we seen that before? Yeah, that would make a good story, I think. That would. That It'd would be interesting yeah. to know more about that guy, wouldn't it? Yeah, I'm imagining him as, as kind of a smallish guy. Um, yeah. Probably pretty yeah. quiet, maybe even possessing a magic yeah. ring. Yeah. Fond of bacon, I'm sure. Oh, very much so. And eggs and butter. Yeah. And yeah. Now, Beowulf, good king that he is, realizes that, well, he has to do something about the dragon. So yeah. he puts together a posse and goes after it. Now, he tries to fight it alone, but. This is 50 years later, so he's, well, not exactly in his prime anymore. Uh, and he struggles. <laughs> yeah. So most of his men get scared and run off. Now, where have we seen that before? Yeah, I wonder. It rhymes with Burin Jurambar. <laughs> That's terrible. But yes, <laughs> it you. does. Uh, we have seen it there. Um, yeah. Now, one loyal thane, Wilaf, comes to his king's aid. Uh, let's have a Wilaf. Anyway, sorry. I had to, <laughs> just a really bad pun. Now, uh, I think I think the last time that name came up, we might have said Wigglof. I think we did, but it is Wigglof. Yeah, yeah, you are uh, right. Uh, together they kill the dragon, but Beowulf is mortally wounded. Uh, the poem ends with his funeral, and his people sing a, an elegy, a funeral dirge for him. Yeah, yeah, and that, and that's pretty much it. That's Beowulf's life. Yeah. I, along the way, there are a lot of uh, neat things, little references. Um, Kind of mm -hmm. shout outs throughout the poem to other events in the history, or maybe it's probably more accurate to say the folklore of the region. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's all, you know, there's all these mysterious names in there like Shield Shaving and uh, Ingeld, son of Froda, that are tossed around without much explanation. No. It's kind of like uh, in the Council of Elrond when Elrond says to Frodo, if Hador and Hurin and Turin and Baron himself were assembled together, your seat should be among them. 
Right. I mean, we get that now, but certainly we readers- We get that and, now, but you no. have to go to another source to find out who right. those people are. So these were textual ruins then. Exactly. And yeah. it's the same thing with Beowulf. There are other places you can find out who those people are. And obviously scholars know, you know, all these different little bit, cross yeah. references, but but you just look at the poem itself. It's just got these these little references. So mm-hmm. um, a bit like Lord of the Rings in in that way. Yeah. And uh, I, I guess that's it. I mean, that's kind of the, the quick and dirty version of the story. I, I can't promise that we got all the details exactly right. So again, yeah. folks, please correct us if we've misstated something or downplayed something that we shouldn't have. But I think, um, to mm-hmm. to quote the narrator in this first chapter of The Hobbit, now you know enough to go on with. Well, yeah. I mean, that that again, that may not be enough to help you get through your uh, your your exam on Beowulf, but it no, certainly do is not, enough to do help not you. use us for for Please, any college no. classes no. on Beowulf, no, uh, or on anything for that matter. Yeah. Um, so now something the poem... about Angelina Jolie. What was that? Okay. <laughs> Now, the poem was first transcribed from the manuscript in 1786, and it was published in 1815. So by the time Tolkien was writing about it in this essay, well, there had been 120 years worth of scholarship done on it. Yeah. Now, the the vast majority of these scholars didn't really think that much of it as a poem. They thought it was silly or childish with all of its emphasis on monsters and dragons. (laughs) I'm sure none of us have ever heard that about our favorite books. (laughs) Never, never, ever. (laughs) Never, ever. Uh, they thought it was bad epic poetry because, well, it didn't conform to the rules set by Homer and Virgil, you know, centuries earlier on the other side of Europe. Uh, <laughs> uh, one of yeah. his uh, predecessors had, had said it was lacking in dignity, uh, and they thought it wasn't in, any good for anything except as an important historical document. And I, I can't read that without, mm, we are watching your historical documents. <laughs> My math is all. I've been watching the historical documents. <laughs> Here's your Galaxy Quest quote, folks. Uh, but but that yes. Poor Beowulf. Oh my goodness! I I, I could go on all day. So but good. But they really they actually didn't think that it was anything good for anything except that that it was like this great historical document. Uh, in fact, it was Professor Archibald Strong who who called it an important historical document mm-hmm. about the ancient Germanic cultures. Yeah, it, it was kind of like they were reading it for information as opposed to reading it right. for enjoyment or reading right. it for for literary merit. Yeah, um, and and strangely, despite all of that, they they still couldn't come to any kind of agreement about <laughs> a lot no, of this stuff. There's no. there's there's a brilliant passage in Tolkien's essay when he lists out some of the the many oh, complaints yeah. <laughs> and yeah. comments about Beowulf over the years by scholars. It's it's actually sometimes called the Babel passage. Because Tolkien describes an actual babel of voices all making totally different complaints about Beowulf, yeah, some of which yeah. actually contradict each other. Um, it's it's kind of long, so we won't read the whole thing, but I think we no. definitely need to, to call out some highlights here. I just because so. it's it's amusing. We just you don't have to know anything about Beowulf or Beowulf scholarship to understand how uh, strangely contradictory some of yeah. these uh, these many scholarly assessments of Beowulf are. Right. So the first one is. It is feeble and incompetent as a narrative versus, I think Tolkien lists this one right next to it, the rules of narrative are cleverly observed in the manner of the learned epic. (laughs) So there's your first set of opposites, just complete opposites. Total. And then we have, it is the confused product of a committee of muddle-headed and probably beer-bemused Anglo-Saxons. Now, I have to admit, I actually like that concept. I love the idea of a a work written by a bunch of slightly drunk (laughs) Anglo-Saxons. Anglo-Saxons, yeah. But then you have a comment saying- 
Exactly. Say it's the work of a learned but inaccurate Christian antiquarian. Well, certainly it can't be both. Can't be both. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. One of these things is not like the other. Um, There's there's another one. Oh, this is just kind of a a backhanded compliment. It is a work of genius, rare and surprising in the period. Though the genius seems to have been shown principally in doing something much better left undone. Ooh, ouch. Ouch. <laughs> I know. That is backhanded indeed. Uh, and then we get this. That's like when it, you get when you get marks from your teacher, you know, great writing, but why did you choose this topic to write about? <laughs> oh, I, I never got that, ever. Did I? No, never. No. Never. Not, not ever. Uh, then there's this. It is rude and rough. It is a masterpiece of metrical art. It has no shape at all. It is singularly weak in construction. It is a clever allegory of contemporary politics. Its architecture is solid. It is thin and cheap. It is undeniably weighty. By the way, those two were from the same voice. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it is a national epic. It is a translation from the Danish. It was imported by Frisian traders. It is a burden to English syllabuses. And the <laughs> final universal chorus of all voices, it is worth studying. And there's your punchline. I mean, right. Really. Yeah. It's... Such a, such great turns of phrase throughout the essay. Just oh, Tolkien's yeah. wit just comes through so much in this. Oh, it shines. It really does. It really does. And I think, you know, his point, really, the sort of the, the gist of his response is that essentially all of these scholars who said all of these things are missing the point. And, and more importantly, he says that the poem itself is getting lost in this babel of voices. He says right at the beginning of the essay that the collected wisdom, and I'm making air quotes when I say that, uh, <laughs> the collected wisdom on Beowulf is... While rich in many departments, especially poor in one, it is poor in criticism, criticism that is directed to the understanding of a poem as a poem. It has been said of Beowulf itself that its weakness lies in placing the unimportant things at the center and the important on the outer edges. This is one of the opinions that I wish specially to consider. I think it profoundly untrue of the poem, but strikingly true of the literature about it. Beowulf has been used as a quarry of fact and fancy far more assiduously than it has been studied as a work of art. And that is the problem for Tolkien, yeah. is that all this scholarly emphasis on Beowulf as a historical document or a, a resource for philological study or an archaeological relic, you know, mm-hmm. a quarry of fact and fancy, to borrow Tolkien's phrase, is just missing the point. Yeah, yeah. And and that makes sense given what we would later read in On Fairy Stories and what he talks about with the soup and all of this and about mm-hmm. enjoying the work on its own merits. So. That's true, as opposed to investigating, you know, all yeah. the stuff that went Using into it. Using yeah. it as, a, as a, a philological resource, archaeological. Right, yeah. And that. Yeah. And here we have to read another long passage from the essay, frankly, because it's brilliant. Uh, mm-hmm. I think many of us have heard it before, or at least bits and pieces, or maybe uh, not quoted, but, but summarized uh, in one context or another. It's the famous tower allegory in which Tolkien makes a mm-hmm. rather biting assessment of the state of Beowulf scholarship. And here's the, the story. A man inherited a field in which was an accumulation of old stone, part of an older hall. Of the old stone, some had already been used in building the house in which he actually lived, not far from the old house of his father's. Of the rest, he took some and built a tower. But his friends coming perceived at once, without troubling to climb the steps, that these stones had formerly belonged to a more ancient building. So they pushed the tower over with no little labor in order to look for hidden carvings and inscriptions, or to discover whence the man's distant forefathers had obtained their building material. Some, suspecting a deposit of coal under the soil, began to dig for it, and forgot even the stones. They all said, This tower is most interesting. 
but they also said after pushing it over, what a muddle it is in. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> I guess. And, and even the man's own descendants, who might have been expected to consider what he had been about, were heard to murmur, he's such an odd fellow. Imagine his using these old stones just to build a nonsensical tower. Why did not he restore the old house? He had no sense of proportion. But from the top of that tower, the man had been able to look out upon the sea. Wow. It, it is, it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant yeah. story. Uh, so evocative, just Isn't it? visually. Um, and obviously something written by a man who was not just a scholar, but also a fiction writer. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> it's just so, it's so visual. I think as an allegory, it does take some unpacking. So, oh yeah, uh, all allegory. I, I might does. actually recommend. That's true. So, I might actually recommend to folks. You might just want to run it back and listen to it again. Yeah, go ahead. We um, we don't mind. Okay, are you back now? <laughs> um, yeah. What, so, what do we got on it? The best explanation of the allegory we've heard comes from Verlin Flieger and Splintered Light. Before we get into the details of the allegory itself, I have to say. This is from a man who claims to have had a cordial dislike of allegory. That may be true. I'm not going to argue. I'm not going to claim that he didn't know what he was saying when he said that. I will say this, that though he didn't write allegory often, when he did, it was phenomenal. It was like He was this. very effective. Yeah. Yeah, very effective. Well, you, it, you so. can look at something like Leaf by Niggle. That's I mean, he exactly did clearly write allegory a few times, and it, yeah. is, it is very powerful stuff. Yeah. Um, Whether Smith is allegory or not, I'll let Doctors Flieger and, and Shippy battle <laughs> Shippy that out. Shippy fight that one out, Yeah. But I will say that, you know, the clear one, like Leaf by Niggle, right. brilliant stuff. Um, yeah. So the best explanation does come from Dr. Flieger. She explains that the old stone is, of course, the myth-infused Old English language. Right. And then the older hall that the stones come from is, uh, in Flieger's words, the ancient heritage of myth, legend, and history that informed the poet's diction. All that, mm -hmm. all that stuff that, yeah. sort of the, the, the stuff that comes with the stones. The textual um, ruins, the shield shaving right. and all that. Yeah. Right. Uh, the house the man lives in is the modern English language. You know, it's the utilitarian thing that he's using every day right. um, that he can't live without. But all these people who are kind of looking over the ruins and complaining about how he's not using the stones in the right way. These are <laughs> scholars and students and also English speakers. Um, they're, they're all, all these people who, who fail to see the importance of the tower. Um, as a tower. As a tower, yeah. Uh, they, and they don't understand why he bothered building it instead of leaving the stones to be studied or digging for something, you know, really valuable. Again, air quotes like coal. <laughs> yeah, air quotes indeed. It's like, why are you wasting your time with this stuff when you, you know, with this right. tower when you could be getting something really useful from all these stones? Exactly. But of course, the tower is the poem itself. It's a thing of beauty from which the man can see the sea. Mm -hmm. It's something to be enjoyed for its own sake and maybe to inspire. Now, Tolkien doesn't say that it's wrong to read the poem for historical data or for philological information. What's wrong is losing sight of the poem as a work of literature on its own merits. Yeah, and I think that's key is, is on its own merits because another thing he said is that it's wrong to criticize the poem for not being something it's not, mm -hmm. like we talked about a little while ago, but it's not an epic. Yeah. Um, it, one of the big complaints about it is that it's, oh, it doesn't meet the meet the criteria of an epic, according to Homer's Odyssey, Virgil's Aeneid. Well, it's not. It's not an epic exactly. poem. Exactly. So that's why it doesn't it's fit. It's also not Greek. Or Latin or anything or Latin like that. For, it's yeah. not, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's something old different. Right. It's different yeah, language, different exactly. culture. And it comes from an old English mentality. It comes from an exactly. old English culture. Yeah. So at that point, he ends up spending the rest of the essay really going in depth about what exactly its own merits are. That's right. And having addressed the critics, he goes on to talk about the monsters. 
Now, <laughs> and I love it. Something that's key. Very clever. Yeah, to Tolkien's explanation of Beowulf is that the monsters are not a distraction. They are the point of the story. Right. So so a moment ago when I read about Tolkien's reference to an earlier scholar's belief that Beowulf's weakness lay in, in placing the unimportant things at the center and the important mm. things on the outer edges, you know, basically what that previous uh, scholar was saying was, you know, there's too many Grendels and dragons. There's not enough right. human drama. There's not enough history. There's not enough of the shield shavings and the ingeld son of Frodas. Uh, right. Tolkien comes at this with an attitude of, well, you might think the monsters are unimportant, but I don't think the monsters are unimportant. <laughs> right. And I don't think the poet who wrote Beowulf did either because, you know, he spends a lot of time on them. Exactly. And he even gets a little snarky by saying that more than one poem in recent years has been inspired by the dragon of Beowulf, but none that I know of by Ingjald son of Froda. <laughs> That's right. And, and, and that was actually a plug for, uh, for him and his buddy Jack, wasn't it? I think so. I think uh, I think it was, uh, it was Professor Drought and Professor Shippey. I think who had pointed out that the the poems he's talking about these these poems that have been inspired by the Beowulf dragon were actually probably ones that were written by him and by C.S. Lewis, which, was <laughs> which pretty makes fun. sense, of course. Yeah. Now I think at this point it's probably best to go back to Tolkien's own words in the essay because there's some brilliant stuff in here. Here's what he says: We do not deny the worth of the hero by accepting Grendel and the dragon. Let us by all means esteem the old heroes, men caught in the chains of circumstance or of their own character, torn between duties equally sacred, dying with their backs to the wall. But Beowulf, I fancy, plays a larger part than is recognized in helping us to esteem them. Heroic lays may have dealt in their own way, but though with sympathy and patience we might gather, from a line here or a tone there, the background of imagination which gives to this indomitability, this paradox of defeat inevitable yet unacknowledged, its full significance. It is in Beowulf that a poet has devoted a whole poem to the theme and has drawn the struggle in different proportions so that we may see man at war with the hostile world and his inevitable overthrow in time. The particular is on the outer edge. The essential is in the center. Hmm. So the essential actually is in the center if you realize what the essential actually is. Yeah. I will say this totally as an aside. I do not want to have to structure. Uh, what did when you were in high school and you had to diagram the sentence? Remember that? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That last thing that I read from, but though with sympathy, all the way to inevitable overthrow in time was one sentence. Yeah, yeah. Complex. <laughs> That's got sentence so structure. many parenthetical phrases. I do not. Tolkien, wanna, a master of language, and yet it it, yeah. it works perfectly. Like it makes perfect sense. It's so clear. It really is. It's so utterly clear. Yeah. Still don't want to diagram it, but yeah. No, no. <laughs> No, certainly not. But but you can learn from it. He's uh, you can clearly see Tolkien the you know the teacher at work there. Yeah. Oh, um, oh, absolutely. This is him. This is him teaching for sure. No wonder. Yeah. These are lectures that he'd given that he combined into one you know big right. big masterpiece. Yeah. Right. So to go back to that last line, the essential is in the center. Um, basically, what Tolkien is saying there is that all this monster fighting business in the Beowulf poem, it's not just some childish distraction. You know, it's not like the it's not like a Michael Bay movie with all these explosions and you know crazy fights and all this stuff. Tolkien's saying those things are the essential point of the poem. The, the whole poem is about the idea that man is at war with the hostile world, right? Yeah. And and that and if you miss that, you're you're missing the point of the poem. You, yeah, you've not um, been paying attention. That's true. Yeah. 
There's another point in the essay where Tolkien says something else, which uh, is a, another pretty famous passage. And I, I think it's probably my favorite just because there's some great word nerdery in it. And there's some great old English that I'm oh, probably wow. going to mispronounce. So here we go. Well, I'm glad you're doing it, not me. Yeah. He who wrote Haleth under Hevnum may have meant in dictionary terms, heroes under heaven, which is what that phrase means, right. or mighty men upon earth. But he and his hearers were thinking of the Ermengrund, the great earth, ringed with gar sedge, the shoreless sea, beneath the sky's inaccessible roof, whereon, as in a little circle of light about their halls, men with courage as their stay, went forward to that battle with the hostile world and the offspring of the dark, which ends for all, even the kings and champions, in defeat. Mm. Wow. I know, right? <laughs> it's... Yeah. Uh, a striking image, uh, this, the, the circle of light, you know, this yeah. circle of light in the darkness is such a powerful image for me. And I keep coming back to this Yeah, and this idea of man at war with the hostile world. You know, we talked about that uh, a few minutes and ago. And knowing that all ends in defeat. Yeah. Yeah. All ends in defeat because the hostile world is surrounding us. We're, yeah. we men, humans are on an island in the darkness this little circle of light around our halls, our civilization, and right. all around us are monsters. Mm, yeah. And and yeah, defeat is inevitable. It, it's always going to end in defeat. That's true. And that's what we see with Beowulf. He may he starts out young and vigorous and you know he wins all this fame and this fortune and he dispatches these monsters like it's nothing. Yeah. But then in this last episode, he gets old and he dies in battle. That's right. So you see that death is inevitable. You know, he still goes and fights the dragon. Sure. Even though he is likely to be killed. And I think that's the point. That but is the death point. is inevitable. That, that is the point. You know, he faces his inevitable fate, mm -hmm. but he faces it with courage and acceptance. If he's going mm -hmm. to die, which he will, we all will, he might as well go down fighting. He doesn't give in mm -hmm. to despair and, and fail to act as he should. It's, it's a very Germanic thing. Yeah. You know, we see the same thing with the Viking obsession with death. We talked about this uh, with Tom Shippey uh, in the last episode, the, the sort of gallows humor, mm -hmm. uh, laughing shall I die. Yeah, yeah, that whole concept. This, uh, this acceptance of their fate led the, led the Germanic heroes to a kind of courage and heroism that's unique to what Tolkien calls the Northern spirit. Uh, he says, it is the strength of the Northern mythological imagination that it faced this problem, put the monsters in the center, gave them victory but no honor, and found a potent but terrible solution in naked will and courage. Hmm. So potent is it that while the older Southern imagination, and by Southern, he's talking about Southern Europe, so Greece and Rome, this older Southern imagination has faded forever into literary ornament. The Northern has power, as it were, to revive its spirit even in our own times. It can work even as it did work with the godless Viking, without gods, martial heroism as its own end. But we may remember that the poet of Beowulf saw clearly the wages of heroism is death. Hmm. Man, I love that line. The, the wages of heroism is death. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, Beowulf may triumph in battle against Grendel or Grendel's mother for a day, a right. year, 50 years, I think it ends up being for him. But mm -hmm. eventually he is going to be defeated in battle. That's right. I mean, every person is defeated by death eventually anyway. Uh, there's a great one-liner in this essay that goes, he is a man. And that for him and for many is sufficient tragedy. Oh, yeah, that's... That could, that could refer that, to Turin, really. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know that that is a, a really powerful sentence just on, his, on its own. 
Yeah. Um, and you can really kind of start to hear some of those antitheses that, you know, we talked about with, mm. with Ferling mm-hmm. Flieger. Yeah. This man with all this hope and this great sense of humor and this so much personality, but he also saw this, um, yeah. uh, this kind of essential tragedy of, of the human condition. It's dark stuff. I mean, this is all really pretty dark stuff, but it's it's not inaccurate. You know, no, it's not. In, You're right. This is this is a fallen world as Tolkien sees it, and uh, it's all too easy to see why yeah. he saw it that way, yeah. regardless of of what your worldview is. But but you know, in this fallen world, there is a lot wrong, mm-hmm. and, and and you know, we kind of even get a little bit of this in on fairy stories when he talks yeah. about the need for escape, right? Um, right. Why would we need to escape if it was all right? Right. You know, yeah. This this world is, you know, is something that that we do want to escape, that we should want to escape. Right. And he even talks about that. I believe the escape from death is the the, the one that we all aim to, the one we mm-hmm. all aspire to. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Now, while fairy stories bring escape uh, along with consolation and recovery, mm-hmm. they bring a hope for something greater. A, a Germanic poem like Beowulf shows us courage in the face of the inevitable. Now, does that mean these two essays are opposed? I mean, they're showing these two contradictory views of the world and the human condition. Verlin Flieger describes these essays as light and dark, opposing forces in Tolkien's mind and in his literary subcreation. And rather than attempt to try to compare the two essays one to one, I'd just suggest reading them both yeah. uh, and maybe Professor Flieger's Splintered Light yeah. and seeing just how they contrast with each other. Or maybe even her uh, her essay in There Would Always Be a Fairy Tale. I think it was yeah. called Eucatastrophe in the Dark was the yes. name of it. Yes. Um, yeah, she, it's sort of a shorter summation of of the. Yeah, yeah, it does the, kind of take the push those and pull points. of those of those two essays. Mm-hmm. So, just speaking for myself, I personally would say that I think the two essays do show two opposing aspects of the human condition, mm-hmm. but I don't really feel like they're contradicting each other. I, mm. I kind of feel like you can see it as Beowulf offering hard realities about the world we know, this world. Right. But on fairy stories, offering a chance of hope for something greater. Yeah, and and I think I kind of think um, that that's what Flieger is getting at in her comparison of the two. You know, I mm-hmm. think now that I'm familiar with with both essays, I would say that Lord of the Rings actually brings these two concepts together. I, mm-hmm. I don't think. Yeah, I don't think they're contradictory. I don't think they could be contradictory, or Lord of the Rings wouldn't work. Uh, yeah. It would just be sort of a jumbled mess. Exactly. No, it really does bring them together. Uh, you know, we we see these moments of backs against the wall, you know, mm-hmm. you're going to go out fighting. And then we also see the eucatastrophe from on fairy stories. There right. is a, a strong contrast between light and dark here, as Dr. Flieger points out in Splintered Light. But I think what we see Tolkien doing in on fairy stories is pointing out that the hard realities about the world we know, as you call them, that we learn from Beowulf may be the truth, but they're an incomplete truth that the rest of the story, if I can paraphrase Paul Harvey, is a story of hope. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I ever thought I'd get a Paul Harvey. <laughs> that, um, you know, while we can never count on a eucatastrophe, I mean, by definition, you can't count on a eucatastrophe. We really don't ever see the end beyond all doubt until that end is right on top of us. So even when we have to face death with our backs against the wall, we still act with hope. Well, and you can absolutely see that in the Lord of the Rings. Oh, and, yeah, all um, over the place. Yeah, we'll we'll get into some specific uh, Lord of the Rings applicability in a minute here. But yeah, 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 I mean, obviously, already there's some that probably people's minds are are kind of going mm-hmm. like, oh, that's the difference between this character and that character. <laughs> um, and and more on that <clears throat> very soon. Denethor. Um, <clears throat> <laughs> Now you spoiled it. Come on. Oh, come on. We've talked about that before. I, I know, think on a totally Tolkien reading day about... episode, right? 
but I think that's exactly the difference. It's yeah. the, um, is the, you know, Theoden, Theoden acts with, yeah. with hope. He knows that that's he knows right. that his back's against the wall. Oh yeah. But I mean, talk about still, a little circle of light surrounded by giant elephants. I mean, yeah. You know, yeah. He still does what he has to do. He that's still right. does just like Beowulf does. He goes and fights the dragon. Yeah. You know, metaphorically speaking, figure, figuratively speaking. Yeah. Right. Whereas, you know, Denethor is the one who who refuses. He refuses to leave the hall. And in fact, he, he refuses to even mm. live knowing that the monsters are ringing him about. Yeah. He, he gives up on life point. itself. Yeah. So, yeah, there's there's definitely you can Spoiler definitely see for a lot like four of years from now, just so you're right. <laughs> right. For the, for the we three just avoid, people out there. We're just going to avoid. We're just going to say it right now. There will be almost no spoiler warnings in, no, in our no. episodes because we have for to the assume three all people read it. out there who have not read The Lord of the Rings or seen the movies, because I can't believe that there are more than three people out there who have no idea what any of this stuff is about and are listening to us. I mean, because there are plenty of people us. who don't well, have a clue. Yeah, that, that's what I mean. Yeah, people listening to us. to us. Yeah, they they wouldn't get through ninety two episodes of this show <laughs> if they don't know <laughs> who's the sulking guy. And what is this was, Lord, of the, Lord what? of the Flies? Didn't he? I've, I've right? read Lord of the Flies. I was in yeah junior high. Yeah, that's right really short. That, that that how can that take so long to go through? <laughs> but uh, sorry, but, uh, we digress. We do. But back to the Beowulf essay. There's a yeah. passage near the the very end of it where I feel like. Tolkien almost brings these two opposites together. Mm-hmm. Um, he ends, or I guess I should say he almost ends because it's the second to last paragraph. Okay. There's a statement in there about why having Beowulf fall in battle with a dragon and as opposed to fighting in, I don't know, some random battle with another Swedish king somewhere, um, mm-hmm. why that makes the story more meaningful. Or maybe and with this the is... Swedish chef. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Sorry. Just... Oh, no. I'm just picturing the the Swedish chef like fighting with Beowulf. He's and like he's throwing flinging, bananas at him, and... swords. Oh, I was I was thinking like he's just flinging swords and spears up in the air like when, like when he cooks. Right, exactly. Um, <laughs> oh, there's oh, an image man. for you. Yeah, Borg de Borg de Beowulf. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but our apologies to our Swedish listeners. Thank our you. Our apologies your to the entire nation of Sweden. Well, yeah, and there's yeah. And everybody else. And to the Henson estate. Yeah. Yes, that's a very good point. We might have to apologize to them with our lawyers. We might. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, this is this is really beautiful. Uh, it is. Tolkien says, it is just because the main foes in Beowulf are inhuman that the story is larger and more significant than some imaginary poem of a great king's fall. Mm-hmm. It glimpses the cosmic and moves with the thought of all men concerning the fate of human life and efforts. It stands amid but above the petty wars of princes Mm. and surpasses the dates and limits of historical periods, however important. At the beginning and during its process, and most of all at the end, we look down as if from a visionary height upon the house of man in the valley of the world. A light starts. Lixt se leoma over landafella. The light shines over many lands, is the translation. Wow, well done, I think. And there is a sound of music, but the outer darkness and its hostile offspring Lie ever in wait for the mm. torches to fail and the voices to cease. Grendel is maddened by the sound of harps. Wow. You're not kidding. That is a, a beautiful passage. And it would have been more beautiful had I not made that silly joke about the Swedish chef. But it, it did kind of write itself right there. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, we got there in the end. We did. We did. Um, and I really, I don't know whether you said that right, but it sounded beautiful. So I'm going to assume you did those pronunciations correctly. Um, I'll go with it. Somebody tell me if I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. And somebody will. 
I can help guarantee me. you that these days. We, we help me help myself. There you go. So what I'm getting from this, what makes us human, what provides the circle of light, things like the joy of music that we hear in the harps, the fellowship, the camaraderie, those are the things that hold value. The fact that the, the outer darkness and its hostile offspring are waiting, and the fact that we as mortal men, we got to one day die, those things may be true, but we embrace life all the more for that truth. Yeah. That's the way, I mean, that's, yeah. that's how I'm hearing this. Yeah, I think so. I think it's, um, I think if you remember, it was the sound of revelry in the hall right. that made Grendel mad, you know, yeah. it made him kill. And so I think Tolkien is reminding us that, that, yeah, there is this darkness out there waiting for us and it will ultimately come and get us. We, we are going to die, right? Uh, but we can only die. We must die with our backs to the wall. Mm. Uh, and, and I love the fact that he ends with the sound of harps because that, yeah. that tells me kind of like to your point that we should just keep on playing. Right. Yes. It makes Grendel mad, but, but don't stop. Let him come. You know, men will fight. Men will die if they have to with their backs to the wall, but at least they're going to fight. Yeah. And you can bet that they're not going to be bullied into, into stopping the music. No. Uh, they're not going to stop playing. Grendel's going to come and gonna... kill us anyway. Yeah. Might as well enjoy the sound exactly. of harps, the sound of revelry, the fellowship, the camaraderie, the, 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 the parties in the hall, so to speak. Yeah. Mm. Well, yeah, while we're alive, let's go ahead and enjoy that life. And right. um, surely people, people are thinking, oh, there's some other Lord of the Rings, you know, uh, mm -hmm. obvious uh, applicable uh, imagery moments there. That, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Moments there. Um, you know, let's let's enjoy the company of others while we're in that circle of light. And let's mm. let's also go out and fight, fight right. for that that circle of light to, to stay lit. Yeah, uh, I find that I find that lovely. And I find there's just so much resonance there with with the lord of the rings and and i and i think it's the beginning of that passage is important too because mm -hmm. it does say that you know if, if beowulf just fought humans the story wouldn't have as much impact i think no, you're right because his foes are supernatural that that's really what makes it resonate for us so much and maybe how that's does he what put makes it, it, more it timeless. glimpses the cosmic and moves with the mm -hmm. thought of all men concerning the fate of human life yeah yeah, well, it's it and I like that it surpasses the dates and limits of historical periods. It right. it makes it more timeless. It makes it a timeless story. Yeah. It's not just the story of, you know, a king who fought in some actual historical war. Um, yeah, you're right. It's it's even the dif difference between something like, uh, you know, Beortnoth, uh, Beorthelm's mm, son, yeah. which is a historical, um, yeah, a, a historical story that Tolkien wrote a, a drama about. And that has a lot of the same kind of themes that we find in places like Turin and, and in Lord of the Rings. But mm -hmm. doesn't it have more of a timelessness when, when you take it out of that historical context and you put it in mm. a secondary world? Yeah. And I think that's kind of the point. I think that is the point. You're right. I mean, and boy, that does certainly have much of that northern spirit, you know, that, that fight with your back against the wall sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm and I, and I think it's worth noting, we've, we've mentioned this a couple of times, but I think it really bears underscoring this is only one side of the story. You know, we're yeah. talking about Beowulf, the monsters and the critics now because we're we're writing a wrong that's been <laughs> right that's in, in our podcast feed since episode one. Episode one is when we talked about on fairy stories and we just never got around to, to this one. We didn't right. realize the importance of it. Um, and, and you really need to take both of them together. Uh, that's it's true. Not if that, you've not listened to episode one, listen yes, to episode go back. one. Go back and listen to episode one. Because and please accept got, our apologies for how rough it was back then. For, the, just, for, yeah, for some of the sound quality and some of the roughness of our, um, of our, <laughs> just us, of our us. 
But yeah, I mean, it is important to take both of them together. It really is. They, the they Lord are... of the Rings is not all this back against the wall stuff. That's no. there. But it's also all this other stuff of hope and, and Estelle. Escape and recovery and consolation. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah, really all is of that stuff things. that's in on fairy stories. Yeah. And I think Lord of the Rings really brings those two concepts together. And I think it, it, it shows... Does. Uh, it shows both. And I think that, you know, going back to, to Dr. Flieger's analysis of Tolkien and his world as sort of a, a man of antitheses and, and a yes. world defined by opposites. I think that's that's really key. It really is. And like she's talked about many times, you need to have the one to understand the other. And it goes both ways. Mm, that's right. Yeah. You know, you, mm -hmm. if you don't have this circle of light, monsters all around die with your back against the wall, then the catastrophe is nowhere near as impactful, nowhere near as powerful, right? Uh, as significant as it is with it, and vice versa. The, the catastrophe makes the, the fact that it's a catastrophe and not a guaranteed thing, the fact that you can't mm -hmm. count on it to happen, makes those moments of the circle of light surrounded by the monsters all the more terrifying because you don't know and you yeah. can't count on the you catastrophe. You don't know if happen. that's coming. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It has to have the possibility of discatastrophe. Yeah. The danger has to be real. There has yes. to be a real danger of failure. And and there is that in Lord of the Rings. Throughout. Oh, absolutely. Including some very real failures. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some of the ways in which those concepts uh, come out in Tolkien's work. We we have the idea of a final defeat. We've been kind of talking around that a little bit, but that's that's the first thing that comes to mind, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think just because there's there's that quote that I love by Galadriel in Fellowship of the Ring, when Galadriel tells the Fellowship that together through the ages of the world, we, meaning she and Celeborn, have mm -hmm. fought the long defeat. Mm -hmm. um, it's such a striking passage. And I, and I think I, I don't really think I understood the import of that the first 20 times I read the book. Probably, probably. not. That's right. Um, yeah, no, <laughs> you're right. That takes on a lot more meaning when you uh, have read yeah. First Age and you've read all of these other things that, that help you put that in context. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, it's really key that she doesn't say we have fought in the hopes of vanquishing evil forever, you know, something like right. that. She doesn't, she doesn't no. think that evil is going to be destroyed. She knows that's not, that's going to not happen. an option. I mean, we talked about right. that, uh, uh, in, in regards to the Peter Jackson films and how different they were from the book, mm -hmm. because they talk about defeating evil as though it could be done on a permanent basis. If we'd all just team up together and overlook our differences. Right. Right, but that's not that's not the way it is in, no. in Tolkien's Arda. Arda is a fallen world, and evil right. will always be there. Mm -hmm. um, I think going back to episode ninety with uh, Verlin Flieger, she talked yeah. about this idea that nothing good will ever last. I remember when she said that; it just it kind of hit me. You know, it, yeah, that was a hard thing to hear. But the, the fact is that nothing evil will ever last either. I mean, that's the true. End of the day, that is absolutely it's true. Yeah. All going to be wiped out. Um, I think, yeah, I think all things, both the good and the evil are transitory. And I think that's why, that's why there's, you know, the, the hope and uh, the, I guess mm -hmm. the grim reality. I think that's yeah. why, um, that's why both play against each other so well, because they both are true at different times. Yeah. You know, and she also talked about how the Lord of the Rings is a story about somebody who tried and failed. As a reminder, mm. Frodo's quest ends in final defeat. He cannot destroy the ring, but Gollum shows up, takes the ring from him, and there's your catastrophe. Right. And you can really see the interplay of Beowulf and on fairy stories right there in that one moment. 
Yeah, you're not kidding. The, the the moment of final defeat followed immediately, yeah. almost immediately by the moment of catastrophe. Yeah. And we talked about that with Dr. Flieger, how um, how powerful that is, that those two moments come right on each other's heels. So intense. I think you can even see that interplay in uh, one of my favorite scenes. The, the, there's a scene between Eowyn and Faramir in the oh. Houses of Healing. Oh, I love this. Um, yes. And I've got this one ready, uh, Eowyn, uh, starting with Eowyn's dialogue. Then you think that the darkness is coming, said Eowyn. Darkness unescapable? And suddenly she drew close to him. No, said Faramir, looking into her face. In this hour, I do not believe that any darkness will endure. Mm. Mm. That, that dialogue, just those two lines of dialogue between these, these two people, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the striking contrast between, you know, Eowyn's Germanic grimness, you know, just yeah. sort of this very Anglo-Saxon, um, yeah. <laughs> fatalistic acceptance of the darkness is coming and, and, yeah. and it's unescapable. Um, that's almost a, a, an exact synonym for <laughs> inevitable defeat, darkness <laughs> yeah, unescapable. Pretty much. That, that would be right there, yes. But you've got a contrast between that and, you know, Faramir's hope. And remember yeah. that Faramir is, um, you know, he's, he's, he's of the Dunedain. You know, he's yes, got, he he's got a bit more enlightenment than, uh, than, uh, than the Rohirrim do. So, yeah, yeah. he certainly does. Though I will say on a, on a totally side note on a totally different topic, because we digress, if you're a young man and a, and a girl comes to you and says, you think the darkness is coming? Darkness unescapable? And she suddenly draws close to you? Say, yes, yes, I think it is. This is our last chance. <laughs> <laughs> you say there's like one who's, uh, who's used no, no, that no, before. No, 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 no. 30, 35 years ago, maybe, but just, you know. Just, just general good advice for, just general for good the young advice men out there. For the... <laughs> Uh, that was intended sarcastically. Oh, that is not good advice. Let's just be clear on that. <laughs> I'm probably the last one you want to come to for for advice in that direction. Just let's be clear. Yeah, same here. It's like uh, I don't even remember <laughs> my pre twenty. You know, it's yeah. We've been it's been twenty six years almost. Well, by the time this comes out, it'll be twenty six years, and uh, um, so close to twenty eight years since I've. <laughs> I'm right behind you, dude. I've been with my wife for 24 years. My goodness. So, yeah. Which is amazing. That means that both of us were with our wives before we were even born because we are not that old. It's true. We cannot possibly be that old. Yeah. We were born with rings on our fingers. That's right. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Well, you know, the other theme or the next theme, I should say, in the face of final defeat, the next theme is go down fighting. Now, we've touched on this a little (laughs) bit before that that's the mindset of Theoden and of Eowyn. But it isn't the mindset of Denethor who gives in to despair. And that's the essence of Gandalf's words at the last debate. He says, yet it is not our part to master all the tides of the world, but to do what is in us for the succor of those years wherein we are set, uprooting the evil in the fields that we know, so that those who live after may have clean earth to till. What weather they shall have is not ours to rule. I love that. Yeah. One of my favorite lines oh, in the entire just the entire story. It is such a great line. Mm. It is such a great line. And it and it's another one that you kind of have to you have to come at it with a little bit of knowledge yeah. of Tolkien's um you Tolkien's do. perspective and you know the the sort of the the body of his work to really understand, you know, what Gandalf is saying there is that, you know, yeah, they're not going to defeat evil forever, but they have no. to fight it as best they can for right. for now. We have yeah. to do it for now. Yeah. Save now. Mm. Um I would say that that it, it's also that sort of um, go down fighting, as you called it. That's that's also <laughs> lingering in the background of of one of Gandalf's most famous quotes of all time. That all we have oh, to decide yes. is what to do with the time that is given to us. That's right. Um, you know, it, 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 we're not going to defeat evil forever. It doesn't matter if we defeat evil forever. But what what's going to matter is that we're going to fight it. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's right. The fighting alone is what has value. Uh, right. The fact is, eventually, we will succumb. We will lose. Uh, right. Whether it's us or our descendants, I mean, you know that, and that's his point about right. the wh- whether they shall have is not ours to rule. Right. But it's our job to do what we can right now for the now to make yeah. things as good for them as we can. Exactly. Go down fighting. We're not going to run. Mm-hmm. We're not going to hide. We're going to you know yep. go out there and face the monsters. Yeah. Yeah. Even if it is just setting a good example to inspire them, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you right. get a lot of that with with the Rohirrim. You know, there's this idea that you know they. They, they go out thinking they're going to die, but at least, yeah. you know, make it worthy of song. Yes. Make it end worthy of song. Yeah. I guess the, the next thing that I, I would love to talk about is this little circle of light. I think, and I kind of alluded to this earlier, but there's really no better example of this in Middle Earth, I think, than the Shire. Oh, yeah. Uh, that is a place where, just like Herod, uh, the people are feasting. They're mm-hmm. making merry. They're singing songs. They're 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 drinking good ale. They're enjoying mm. people's enjoying each other's company. And yeah, yeah. All the while, these monsters are lurking just beyond the borders, and they they don't even really know it. That's true. I mean, it is a little different in the sense that they're not going out and facing those monsters, but they are. Yeah, that's true. They are doing it while the monsters are around them. This is a circle of light that's maybe a little. This is the little oblivious circle of light. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it's yeah. still similar in concept. The, the hobbits keep on doing this, even when they are taken. And this is why it does work, because even when you take the hobbits, the four of them, from the Shire and bring them to scary places, they bring their hobbitishness and those those actions with them, like Merry and Pippin bringing food to Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli in the oh, yeah. ruins of Isengard. That's um, right. Yeah. We talked about that Tolkien reading day. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the hobbits just seem to insist on being themselves in the face of evil and, and possible defeat, maddening Grendel with the sound of their harps, if I can borrow that. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think the hobbits are a great example of that. You're right. There's a, it's a little bit different because it's really other people who are kind of do- going out and doing the fighting so that they can, they yeah. can have that life. But, uh, but no, really, really astute uh, observation that, you know, they actually bring it with them. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think yeah, that's, that's really key. I think one more thing that I just can't help thinking of, and I'll admit this is probably a little bit too literal, but the image yeah. of the little circle of light. You do that sometimes. Light, it's okay. I, yeah, we do. <laughs> me, to, me especially. But the image of the little circle of light surrounded by darkness reminds me of Ea itself. Uh, mm. It actually says on the first page of the Silmarillion, it's a yeah. light in the darkness set amid the set. void. Yeah, the world is globed amid the void. That's right. And we, you know, we associate the void with Melkor. Remember, Melkor, you know, used to go and investigate the void. Um, right, to and, try to find the flame imperishable. Yeah. Yeah, but it wasn't there. It was in no. Ea. Yeah. Um, well, it was with Iluvatar himself only, and, and then he said it in that's the That's true, of, but he, he sent, yeah. uh, he sent uh, a yeah. flame. I think we, <laughs> there's that whole secret yeah, fire that's, flame. Yeah, that's right. The whole thing between the secret fire and the, the flame world. imperishable. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. We should revisit that one day. I think some we probably might. should. Well, I guess we'll probably get to it when we get to uh, Moria. Oh yeah, yeah, that'll be a good point because we'll be Sermon talking of the about secret the secret fire. Yeah, yep, yep, absolutely. So I think it's probably very literal, but it is possible that Tolkien was at least thinking of this image when he oh, wrote. Sure, sure. Uh, I don't see know, why not. That. Yeah. Well, there's one other theme, uh, and it's the Tower by the Sea. Mm, yeah. You know, a, a lot has been written on how the allegory of the tower uh, in the Beowulf essay matches certain images in the Lord of the Rings, but. That is oh, a discussion yeah, for other yeah. episodes, so we're going to kind of hold off on that one. Yeah, we'll probably get to that one before too long. Yeah. And I think there are probably uh, more ways, maybe even more literal ways in which some of these concepts appear in Lord of the Rings. I know there are mm-hmm. certainly some very specific moments in the story which echo moments in Beowulf, you know, well, yeah. Bilbo stealing the Bilbo. cup and things like that. <laughs> uh, so don't worry, we will be discussing those as they come. That's right. 
Now, we're going to do our best to consider The Lord of the Rings as we read it through the lens of both of those essays. It should be, well, insightful for sure, and in most places, a lot of fun. <laughs> I think so, and maybe occasionally a little bit depressing, but well, yeah, that's that's Lord of the Rings. You know, there is the the light <laughs> and the dark there, and I think that's yeah. that's why we love it. That's why it's so powerful. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Well, folks, that wraps it up for our discussion. I know it's a little bit shorter than a usual one, but we felt like this was an important enough topic to dedicate its own episode to. Uh, but uh, we be sure to come back next week when we finally start talking about. Well, you knew this day was coming. It really is almost <laughs> here. The Lord of the Rings. I can't believe it. It's I know. Almost here. Crazy. Well, before we move on to Barlaman's bag, we want to ask you to consider joining the fellowship of the podcast. That's our family of supporters over at Patreon. Mm -hmm. We're about $400, $450 away from our next goal of setting up a Discord server and allowing patrons a chance to listen in while we record the podcast. <laughs> Not only giving you a chance to laugh at our mistakes, but also getting a sneak peek at an upcoming episode. That's right. That's going to be a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And you'll also get exclusive access to content like full-length bonus episodes every quarter and short postscripts to each episode. There is another way you can help us too, though. You can check out the official library page at our website, theprancingponypodcast.com, where we put together a set of links to all the Tolkien books we've ever mentioned on the show. You can also even give us a hand by posting a review on iTunes. That increases our visibility, which means more new listeners, more great questions for Barlamin more discussion on social media, and just a more vibrant Tolkien community. Absolutely. And please, don't forget to share us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, MySpace, AOL, wherever you hang out. Friendster. Friendster. Wherever oh, my you goodness. Wherever you hang out, it might LinkedIn. Find Tolkien. Yeah, no. yeah. Probably not <laughs> Tinder. I'm just thinking that's probably don't. No, no. no. But wherever you hang out and might find Tolkien fans, please tell them about our show. Uh, with that, it is time to see what old Barlaman has in the mailbag for us. Sean? Well, Alan, sometimes getting the mail from Barlaman takes a long time. <laughs> a long time, to quote Obi-Wan It's been Kenobi. such a long time. <laughs> I think we should be answering. <laughs> um, back in the summer before we started The Hobbit, two listeners, one called Amethyst B, the mm -hmm. other our old friend Tanya P in New York, asked basically the same question about Feanor's oath. Here's the question, which I've sort of... Oh, Feanor again! We're yeah, I know. It's been, it's we're been already a while. off on Feanor. It's been a while since we talked about him. Yeah. Um, not long enough. Well, on the show. Like. <laughs> <laughs> right, <laughs> right. We kind of get into it weekly on Facebook, but not true. with each other, but with others. No, no, no. So here's the question, uh, sort of paraphrased from, from both versions of the question I got from these two listeners. Okay. When the Feanorians swear their oath to recover the Silmarils, now this is back in chapter nine of the Silmarillion, so this would have been mm -hmm. all the way back in season one, they call the everlasting dark or everlasting darkness on themselves if they don't keep it. What do they mean by that? Are they dooming Ooh. themselves to eternity in Mandos without the hope of return? Or is it something worse? Amethyst suggests maybe they're dooming themselves to the void. Or Tanya suggests maybe it's a complete denial of Estel denying themselves the hope of entering Arda Remade beyond the end of the world? Ooh, ooh. That's a heady question, folks. And, yeah, and I brought it, it up here. Right out of the gate, man. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Starting off strong, man. Depends on the answer. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right, right. <laughs> That's a very good point. Uh, no, I, I bring it up here because, I, first of all, I wasn't really sure where to fit something like this into a discussion of The Hobbit. It just well, didn't no, that's really true. Feel Little tone differences right. there. Yeah. Uh, and I was just so happy reading The Hobbit that I just didn't really feel like thinking about Feanor more than I had to. Um, but today we talked about darkness. So I yeah. kind of felt, you know, hey, there you yeah. go. Yeah. 
I had a feeling when you said everlasting darkness, I was like, yeah, okay, I think I know where he's coming from. Oh, I see what you did there. That's right. We needed some space between Feanor and us after that whole season one thing. But, you know, he's a perfect fit if we're talking about darkness. So if you've got any questions about Aeol or Maeglin while we're feeling all goth, go ahead and let us know. (laughs) Perfect time for it, folks. Exactly. Uh, So I found the answer to this one in the index to the history of Middle-earth of all places, in the index. Wow. Um, And people say indexes, uh, indices are not worth much. (laughs) No, I read them them front to back, man. There you go. Every single page of the index. (laughs) No, don't do that. Um, I actually have that one volume index to the whole history of Middle-earth series. And it actually tells you like which volume and page. Yeah, it really is. Um, In that, if you look up void, you actually find cross-references to outer darkness. And then under Outer Darkness, you look up Outer Darkness, and it also says Everlasting Dark under that. Oh. So there you go. Void and Everlasting Dark are the same thing. Okay. Um, there are some cool Quenya words for it as well. There, you know, It's also called Kuma, which means void, or Avakuma, the outer void, or Oyakuma, the everlasting void. So yeah, Ooh, I recognize same that, thing. that prefix from Oyolosa. Oya. Yeah, everlasting, exactly. Everla- yeah, the white. Wow. So it's the same thing as void. Everlasting dark and the void are the yep, same. Absolutely. So this is the the vast dark emptiness beyond the walls of Ea. Now, I want to remind you, if you, especially if you didn't listen to season one, and you should, uh, that that's beyond <laughs> all the universe. It's not just Arda. It's not just beyond the planet Earth. Earth. It's all of creation. It's not um, space. It's, it's no. beyond space. It's, it's beyond, beyond space. the universe. Yeah. Right. So you've got the created universe. That's Ea. That is all of creation. So outside of that is the void. It is where Melkor mm-hmm. was imprisoned at the end of the first age. And it's apparently where Sauron ends up too, if you look at the end of Valaquenta. Right. Now, yeah. remember, the Valar are bounded within the world. And again, it, go back to our early episodes, uh, probably I think, what was it, five on Ainulindale? Something like that. Where we pointed out that world in that context does mean the created universe, not the earth. Right. Uh, he capitalizes world Capital in w. that case. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that is, that is talking about all of creation, not just the planet. So, if the oath that Feanor and his sons took had actual supernatural power, and that part may be debatable, uh, right, then yeah, dooming agreed. themselves to the void if they fail would mean dooming themselves beyond the world, beyond creation, beyond the reach of Mandos or any other Valar, in which case any hope of return to Arda remade, well, that would be between them and Iluvatar, and I'd have to say the odds wouldn't be good on that. Um, <laughs> Probably not. I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't bet the farm on that one, but... However, we should point out that they doomed themselves to the void if they failed to keep their oath. Now, their oath wasn't to recover it. It was to pursue with vengeance and hatred anyone who should try to keep a Silmaril from them. And, well, I think they probably right. did pursue everybody with vengeance and hatred. I, I, I think they did. I think I, I would yeah. say that all of them kept the oath. Feanor and all of his sons kept the oath in that they all died with every intention of reclaiming the Silmarils or you know pursuing anybody who, who held them from them. Even right. the even the last one standing, uh, Mithras and Maglor, uh, they even have a conversation in the last chapter of the Quenta about oh, that's right. know, whether they should keep the oath or just give up trying to get the Silmarils back. This is actually after the Valar had recovered them and Aonwe had right. them. Right. And they um, were going to go into the camp and steal them. And yeah, Right. Yeah. Right. And Maglor feared that even if they kept the oath, that is, if they tried to take the Silmarils from Aonwe, they would still be doomed to the everlasting darkness because that's where they sent Melkor. <laughs> they're just going <laughs> to chuck us out there with him. Six of one, half dozen of the other. <laughs> right. But less evil we shall do in the breaking. So we might as well just break the oath and then just be doomed to the easy Suffer way. the same penalty, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But at least do less um, evil. 
Which, if right, you then he, have to go to a Luvatar hat in hand saying, please, oh, please. Well, at least we didn't attack Aonwe. Right. right. Give us that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, of course, he ended up giving into Mithras, and then, yeah. as you recall, they did get the Silmaril back. Yeah. Uh, Mithras died plural, with... Yeah. Silmarils, right. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, Mithras <laughs> died with one in his hand, and then Moglor put his somewhere where nobody would ever find it. Um, bottom of the sea. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm picturing... My my little girl has watched Tangled too many times. And I, I'm just picturing Rapunzel saying, I put it someplace you will never, ever find it. <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's in there, isn't it? It's in there, yeah. isn't it? Whack. It's in that pot. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, so yeah, I think, I think we're on the same page. I think they yeah. technically kept the oath because they did, they did pursue with vengeance um, and they did, you know, make every effort to reclaim them. Fanatically stupid vengeance, I must have. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I think we have to say, we know that Feanor is with Mandos. Because it tells us that he is in chapter right. 15 and that he right. was never released. So obviously he was not doomed to the void. So That's a good point. I, don't know. I, I think they all ended up keeping the oath and, and probably none of them are out there. They're probably in Mandos for a really long time out. Yeah. But Yeah. How's it going in there, Feanor? What's that you say? You, you want out? You, you want a new body? Yeah, tell that to the Tellery. Okay. Okay, Sean, what else do we have? I'm sorry, in the bag? we're all out of new bodies because you burned so many of our, our boats and killed so many of us. That's right. Well, do we have anything else in the bag for tonight? We do. We have one from Nathaniel G in Virginia. Okay. Another heady one here. Nathaniel asks Given all the time in the world, should every Tolkien fan read all of the history of Middle Earth? Wow. Let's assume that those stories in history with no finished version published elsewhere are worth reading. The rest of history, however, are drafts of stories that Tolkien rejected. As I learned from your interview with Dr. Flieger, an earlier draft of Lord of the Rings had Trotter the Hobbit assume the role of who would eventually be Strider the Man. From a purely historical perspective on Tolkien's work, that's interesting. But from a literary perspective, Tolkien himself disliked it. Presumably, he didn't want us to read it, which is why he changed it. Good point. Other than historical curiosities, then, is anything to be gained by reading drafts that the professor himself rejected? Obviously, someone interested in, say, the philosophy of revision might be interested in these revisions, but that interest wouldn't be literary either. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. Fascinating question, Nathaniel. It um, really is. that. Yeah. And I think an important question for us, because we're about to jump into the Lord of the Rings. Right. And, you know, Nathaniel's right. So much of the history of Middle-earth material, especially here, is just yeah. early rejected drafts. Um, yeah. You know, unlike- yeah. Especially early on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, unlike, say, like going to the Lays of Beleriand, where you can find so much extra detail in the poetry, or right. going to something like Morgoth's Ring, where you get all this cool metaphysics and ethics, you know, all mm -hmm. this philosophy about the way Middle-earth works, um, you know, a lot of what we're going to be uncovering over Lord of the Rings is just rejected drafts. True. And I, I included this question today because as I was reading Beowulf, The Monsters, and the Critics, um, I thought of how Tolkien wrestles with this idea, you know, um, reading Beowulf mm -hmm. as a a source for historical information or anthropological information instead of just appreciating it for its literary merit. Okay. Wow. I think if I think if I have to if I were to break down what Nathaniel is saying, and Nathaniel correct me if I'm wrong, I think you could actually say, you know, The Lord of the Rings has clear literary merit. It's a great sure. book. You should sure, read yeah. it. It's fun One to read it. Greatest of all times, right? Yeah. It's fantastic. Read it. But then does reading something like Return of the Shadow Volume six of the history of Middle Earth, which includes the early drafts of Lord of the Rings, does that have literary merit or is it just interesting as the history mm. of Tolkien's creative process? Wow. I need time to think about it, Alan. I'm sure. curious if you have an answer on this one. Of course, make me go first. I appreciate that. Of course, a lot. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. You're the thanks smart so one. You go first. <laughs> I've got you fooled. Well, you know, from the perspective of literary interest alone, 
I'd have to say that no, not every Tolkien fan needs or or really not every Tolkien fan ought to read the history of Middle Earth. But it definitely does add depth and background. I I guess I'd pose this question to anyone, well, to Nathaniel or to anyone else wondering whether it's worth their time to read. Did you get a lot out of our discussions on The Hobbit when we referenced Ratliff's work or Anderson's footnotes in The Annotated Hobbit? Did you think something like, wow, so Tolkien wasn't originally going to kill off Feely and Keeley, but he did so later in the process because it would make Dane's inheritance of the throne easier to explain? Or did you have any other eye-opening revelatory moments like that? Mm-hmm. Well, if you did, then yes, you'd probably enjoy reading the history of Middle-earth for that purpose. But if you kept wondering when we'd get back to the story, well, then no. I mean, it's pretty simple. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I think, I think once I think about it, I can say in response to that original question, no, probably not every Tolkien fan needs to read all of the history of Middle-earth. Um, I'm working my way through it. I enjoy it immensely, but I certainly yeah. can see why somebody would not. Um, fun story here. I actually just got back from Disney World with my family, and there's a, a VIP tour that you can take at Disney World that you can pay extra for, where they take you into all the secret doors and the tunnels, and you can see how no way how everything really works, and you can see you know the characters getting dressed in their costumes and stuff. I, I forgot. Wow. I know, and it, it, it's not. Do they cheap. have that at Disneyland too, or just Disney World? I'm not yeah, sure. I don't, it, might, it might be something to look into. And, yeah. and I can't remember what its official it's name not is. Cheap, I have to, that makes sense. Well, it's Disney. No. Nothing Disney is cheap that anymore. Is, that is true. That is true. I'll have to ask my wife what the official name is. Um, <laughs> but a lot of Disney fans, which my wife is a huge Disney fan, uh, and, I, and I know yours is too, but a lot mm-hmm. of Disney fans call it the Kill the Magic Tour <laughs> because, because it's like you see too much. It's, it's yeah, kind of like, yeah, you know, yeah. like the old American idiom. You see how the sausage is made. That's basically what, yeah. you know, what you're doing. You're seeing too much. Yeah. Um, is the history of Middle Earth the the kill the magic tour for Middle Earth? Um, <laughs> That's an interesting way of putting it. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Maybe, maybe it is. Yeah, um, maybe. I mean, I still enjoy it, uh, and I still think it's worth reading. Um, I can assure you that my wife still wants to go on that tour at Disney World someday. Maybe when our kids are older <laughs> and they won't be traumatized right. by it. Um, right. But but you know, for a certain kind of fan. I think uh, the history of all this came, the history of how all this came to be is is really interesting. Yeah. Um, but I understand if somebody is, if somebody doesn't feel that way. Right. Um, right. And maybe to Nathaniel's point, maybe that interest is more of a historical interest as opposed to a literary interest. I mean, yeah. the history of Middle Earth is not really presented as a literary work. It's presented no. as a no. a scholarly work about a literary work that, frankly, was never really completed. You know um, what? And that's a good point because. While people may read it and enjoy it, mm-hmm. the the text itself of the history of Middle Earth never tries to put itself off as, you know, here's more of Tolkien's legendarium. Right. It's it's Christopher Tolkien saying, here was the process because so many people were interested in the process and because right. he had the resources to put that together. So it's not right. like it's trying to pretend to be literature. Right. Uh, so that's important too, yeah. I think. But anyway. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think, you know, that's how I approach it is to learn about the process. And for me... Yeah. Personally, knowing all that stuff actually makes me appreciate Lord of the Rings more because I realize what all went into it. And, you know, thinking about what we talked about in this episode, you know, Tolkien himself said about Beowulf, it's fine to use it as a source for history, for anthropology, Mm -hmm. for mythology, whatever other data you want to get out of it. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's fine to get all that data out of it, but you should also enjoy it as a poem. And I think. Right. um, I think I don't think one way of reading is better than the other as long as, you know, you keep both in mind. Right. You know, I'm sure taking the Lord of the Rings on its own uh, without 
history of Middle Earth, I, I think that's fine. I think that's probably yeah. how most people read it. For but, a very long time, that was the only way you could yeah, read it. that's the only yeah. way you could read it. And certainly that's the way we, you know, read it the first time and we loved the it. The first 20 or 30 times, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's probably how most people read it. Um, sure. Of course, if that's how you want to read it, you might be listening to the wrong podcast. <laughs> and I don't, th- I don't direct that as much to Nathaniel because I've talked no, to Nathaniel no, no. a lot. But, you know, to, to other folks who, you know, maybe you're like, eh, I don't know about all this history, Middle Earth stuff. We do go into it a lot because that's just, oh, yeah. that's the well, approach we, we like to. to take. Absolutely. We dig deep. We want to get all that interesting stuff out there. Uh, in fact, we will be referencing the history of Middle Earth at least a few times over the next six seasons. <laughs> <laughs> feels so long when you say it like that. We've been doing it I for know. two Well, and when you realize already. that this season is going to run from September to, when did we figure, like June? June? I think. Yeah. That's a very long season. And then we're going to be doing it again six times. Now, granted, yeah. I think book one is probably a little longer. Oh, I don't know. Council of Elrond's in book two. But uh, yeah. I mean, who knows? I think I, I do tend to think that books five and six are a little shorter uh, than books one through four, but that may just be my my memory playing tricks on me. I think so. Well, folks, that wraps it up for another episode of the Prancing Pony podcast. Please be sure to join us again next week when we finally start the first book of the Lord of the Rings. Now, that's the first book, as in book one, not The Fellowship of the Ring. We are going to be spending an entire season on just the first half of The Fellowship. Now, We're not going to jump straight into the text yet. We're going to give a little background on the text next time because there is a lot to talk about there. There really is. And this is going to keep us going for the next six seasons. So (laughs) definitely a lot we want to get out of the way. So thank you for listening. And thank you for making our common room on Facebook such a fun place to spend time. We want all of you to be a part of this conversation. And it doesn't stop when the episode ends. So we invite you to go see the comments, the questions, the corrections, and more (laughs) on Facebook at the Prancing Pony Podcast on Twitter, at Prancing Pony Pod, and on Instagram, at Prancing Pony Pod. And a special thank you to our patrons at the Keardance Contribution Tier. Demay in Alaska, James in Virginia, Tamsin in Minnesota, and Emily in Texas. Thank you all very much. Make sure you don't miss any episodes of the Prancing Pony Podcast. Subscribe to the show through iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And one last thing, as always, don't forget to send your thoughts, comments, and well, most of all, your college essays on Beowulf to Parliament, and you know there are people who have them. You don't want to actually mine. get uh, no, but you know I, there are some of our listeners who I would love to. Absolutely, but send those to Barliament at the Prancing Pony and we'll try to talk about them in our next show. Well, however long we've had tonight, it is still far too short a time to spend among such excellent and admirable listeners. Until next time, farewell, friends. <laughs>